The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Okay, if you have your Bibles, let's open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. The title of the message is Proof of the Resurrection. So we're going to start in Matthew 27, and there's a few verses at the end of Matthew 27. We'll go through, and then we're going to go through the eighth verse of chapter 28. And uh, (laughs) believe it or not, next weekend, we're going to finish the Gospel of Matthew. There were many that said the rapture would happen before that would happen, but anyway... We'll see. Maybe the rapture will happen. But let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. We pray, Father, that you will speak to us, lead and guide us into the truth. And Lord, you know those who are here, those who are watching, those who are listening. You know what's going on in their lives. You know what their needs are. And I pray that, Father, you will minister to them, that you will speak a word of comfort, a word of encouragement Lord, that maybe things they've been worrying about, wondering about, questioning, Lord, that they will hear your word tonight and it will be like living bread, like manna from heaven. Lord, that it will be something that will strengthen them, that will sustain them, that will open their eyes. Lord, to know and to see and to feel and to experience the height, depth and width and breadth of your love for them that we would follow you with all of our heart and love you with all of our soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Okay, so for your outline, oh, these are not on, so is it on behind me? Okay, so these, if somebody could turn these on so I know, because see, I see in there what is behind me. Do you follow me? So right now they're like blank. So I don't want to keep having to turn around the whole time. Anyway, here was a divine intervention. So beginning in verse 57, Matthew chapter 27, verse 57, it says, now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. So here after the crucifixion, last week we talked about, you know, finally Jesus cried with a loud voice, Father, it is finished, into thy hands I give and commend my spirit. And I love that. He had strength to shout and with a loud voice at the end, which proves he chose the moment of his death. Death didn't take him, but Jesus laid his life down. Jesus offered his life. And as soon as that happened, it says now, when the evening had come. So now we're moving toward Sabbath, right? So it's Friday, it's moving into the evening, Sabbath is coming, and you can't 
do anything with bodies, obviously on the Sabbath, it's a holy day. So now Joseph of Arimathea, and we find from another gospel, uh, Nicodemus, ask for the body of Jesus so that they can give him a proper burial. Now here's what's interesting. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both religious leaders, Pharisees, had become personal believers in Jesus as the Messiah. And yet they they had not openly testified of that, but they believed in him, they trusted in him, they accepted his claim as being the Messiah. And it seems that God kept these two believers within the religious leadership of Israel hidden in order that they might do something very important, take care of the body of Jesus. And what's extremely important about that is that same body that has now been beaten and tormented and, and all that Jesus suffered as you know they pull the spikes from his hand and from his feet and they take his body now to give it a proper burial. It's very, very important how they treat his body because it's going to be the same body that was mutilated and that was tormented and tortured and crucified that on the morning of the resurrection is going to rise from the dead. So it was very important and I believe the Lord set all of this up. And we are told that Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man and he was chosen by God and used by God to prepare a tomb for Jesus. And in fact, when Joseph of Arimathea said, no, I have a tomb and it's brand new, because usually in tombs in those days and in the stone, there would be a family, if you were wealthy enough, to have a burial place. It was carved out of solid stone, but there would be bodies of family members, maybe going back for a very long time, in those, but he had a brand new one hewn out of the stone that nobody had ever been in as a wealthy man. And amazingly, and again, ironically, Joseph of Arimathea was actually fulfilling a prophecy, though he probably didn't realize it at the time, he was actually put in the right place at the right time to be a believer, to take the body of Jesus, put it in a new tomb that was part of his family's tomb, and he fulfilled prophecy. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 53, verse nine. Here is the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus of Nazareth was even born. And in Isaiah 53, verse nine, that incredible 53rd chapter of Isaiah that talks verse after verse, beautiful, profound, deep explanation, really, of the crucifixion of the Messiah. 700 years in advance, and here's what he prophesied in verse nine. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Jesus crucified between two thieves, revolutionaries, murderers, but with the rich in his death. There's Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph, a wealthy man, prepared the tomb for Jesus, and he had actually selected a site 
that was very near to Golgotha. In the, in the Jewish custom, you had to take the body and it needed to be buried somewhere very near and close. And Joseph literally had a tomb that was actually very near to the place of Golgotha, which is where Jesus Christ was crucified. Now, what's interesting about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, so think about them. Friday evening, as they are getting ready themselves for Passover with what little light there was, because Jesus had died at three o'clock in the afternoon. They asked permission for the body. They were given the permission. So here these two Jewish priests now take the body of Jesus. And as they do this and prepare his body for the burial and bring it to the tomb of Joseph, do you realize they defiled themselves? They were now defiled dealing with a dead body that would have interrupted their entire Passover weekend. But what difference did that make to Joseph and Nicodemus? Because they had the honor and the privilege of literally taking the Lamb of God and bringing to him to his place where he would be buried. So look with me in, again, verse 60. It says in verse 60, they brought him and laid him in a new tomb. Again, a new tomb. Uh, this is something that is incredible because when Jesus was born, he was born into a virgin womb and he came forth again from a virgin tomb. And he was only going to be needed for a few days because he would rise from the dead on the third day. So I want you to look with me on this next life lesson here. Without realizing it, the Jewish leaders and the Roman government joined forces to help prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look with me in verses 20, or 62 through 66. It says in verse 62, and on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, sir, we remember while he was still alive, now hold that thought for just a moment. While he was still alive, by them saying while he was still alive, they're admitting that Jesus actually died. I don't know if you know this or not, but there are some who have tried to explain away the resurrection of Jesus, and one of their theories is what they call the swoon theory. I don't know if you've ever heard of the swoon theory, but the, it's the craziest thing you could ever imagine. The swoon theory is that Jesus didn't really die he, he came almost close to death, but then he, he kind of, they, they doctored him back up and then he came back and you know, appeared as if he was alive. Well, here, here are those who are opposed to Jesus. Here are the enemies of Jesus. And here they come, it says the next day, following the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, sir, we remember while he was still alive. So his enemies are testifying that in fact, Jesus died on the cross. You have to have a death in order to have a resurrection. So the enemies of Jesus are testifying, sir, we remember while he was alive, how that deceiver, now that shows that they were still his enemies, said, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day. 
lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So in contrast to the the, the disciples who loved Jesus and his friends who followed Jesus and believed in Jesus, we see the plotting and the scheming of his enemies. And it's also interesting that it, it appears from reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that when Jesus died, when he cried, Father into thy hands, I commend my spirit, breathed his last and died, from that moment on, the disciples forgot, all of them, men and women, that he had said, I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. Nobody talked about it, nobody was thinking about it, nobody was wondering even about it or looking toward it. The only ones who were focused on Jesus' prophecy that on the third day, I will rise from the dead, were his enemies. And so they they went and they secured it. They put a guard there, an an official Roman seal. They asked Pilate, we need Roman guards there as well. We not want a Roman seal on the stone. The seal was a rope over the width of the stone covering the entrance into the tomb. On either side of the doorway, on either side holding that rope was a glob of wax securing the rope over the stone. You could not move that rock without breaking that seal. So the guards were there, they were stationed, they were responsible for what was sealed. And that seal could not be broken according to Roman law. If it was broken, it would cost those guards their careers, and quite possibly their lives. They had a vested interest in making sure that that seal remained and that the rope stayed and that the body remained there, especially on the third day. So interesting, by their excessive care and diligence, instead of preventing the resurrection of Jesus as they had intended, they actually confirmed the truth and the powerful belief that Jesus had risen from the dead. Can I hear an amen on that? So the enemies between the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman government conspired to ensure it cannot be broken, there's no way that he can come back, we're gonna protect, and it was really, the emphasis was on the third day. And all they did in the end was to prove that he is alive, the seal was broken, Jesus has resurrected. Now you have to remember back in that ancient time, you had the Roman world, which had borrowed much of their religious belief in all kinds of gods, all kinds of goddesses. I mean, it was a very, very religious culture. Every city had its god, its goddess, every mountain, every river. Uh, they, They had gods and goddesses everywhere, and they believed in all of them. But what happened to all of those gods and what happened to all of those goddesses and all of that, what we call now mythology? Who today 
calls on the name of those ancient gods in the way that the Romans did. And yet today, because of what happened, there at the tomb, the seal was broken, the stone is rolled away, and today, in the year 2020, 2,000 years later, there are 2.6 billion people from every nation, language, kindred, and tribe on the planet Earth who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, because he truly has risen from the dead. And he's made it available to all of us and proved it to all of us. All right, let's move into chapter 28. And I want to talk about this for just a moment, the victory of King Messiah. I want you to, you know, as we move into chapter 28, I want you to realize something. We've talked about this whole time, you know, we've called this series, all the way from Matthew chapter one, verse one, and all the way through the gospel of Matthew, the very first gospel in the entire New Testament, the foundation, if you will, upon which everything else is going to be laid. And honestly, it's about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And ultimately, what the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves emphatically with an underlining exclamation point is that by the resurrection, Jesus proved he is king of kings and Lord of lords for all time and eternity. Amen? So this is the victory of the king. Now, chapter 28, beginning in verse 1, it says, now after the Sabbath, Okay, so we had Friday, as we remember, Passover, moving in, Friday evening, and then moving into the Sabbath. Uh, and now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn. So now we're on the beginning of day three, okay? Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. As these women come, which they were the last at the cross, and we honored them last week because they were also the, the first ones to come to the tomb. But I have to say this, for both men and women and all the followers and all of the disciples of Jesus, none of them were looking forward to the third day. Even the women who are now going, you think of all the disciples of Jesus, they had witnessed those who were there, the torturous execution of their savior. And, I, and what was going on in their minds as they thought about what had happened to Jesus, which they saw and, and just had been crushed by it. They were probably worried about, wow, they did this to Jesus? What will they do to us? What is our future? Where do we go from here? As Peter said, because you know, many would leave Jesus at various times. He said some things that were hard to swallow, hard to understand. Unless you eat my flesh, unless you drink my blood, you have no part with me. And many disciples left and they said, we don't get it. And they, fo they stopped following Jesus even after seeing many miracles. So Jesus turns to Peter and James and John, the others, he goes, will you also leave? And Peter said, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. But they were surely wondering if this is what they did to the Lord Jesus with all his power, 
with all of his signs, with all of his wonders, with all of his authority, what will happen to us? And yet here is Matthew, an eyewitness to all of these things. And he is now going to record in Matthew chapter 28, the last chapter of Matthew, the greatest and the most controversial event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I want you to think about, they're, you know, they're, they're coming out of Sabbath. I wonder what that Sabbath was like. All, you know, it was Passover, so Jews from all over the world had come to Jerusalem to be there. And now it's the Passover, and it's also the Sabbath. And Sabbath, you know, in Israel, even when we go there, it's very, very strange because on, on the Sabbath day, you know, you're there for a tour and you're going around seeing different things, but you notice the, the, an entire nation comes to a screeching halt, stops. And there's a quietness that is, you can feel. There's a tranquility. You, you, you see it by the app because it's, <laughs> every other day of the week, it's so loud. Uh, everything, you know, the cars and the people and, Life is just loud and full. And then boom, it just lowers to almost nothing on the Sabbath day. This was a Sabbath unlike any other Sabbath that is now permeating the entire holy city of Jerusalem. And appropriately, Jesus' body has been resting all through what is called the day of rest on the Sabbath. And in the midst of all of that, all of the disciples, they're, what are, what are the right words? Perplexed, downhearted, depressed, as all of their messianic dreams and hopes and ideas have suddenly been crushed and absolutely dashed. And it seems that all of the disciples both men and women, virtually all of them, accepted the reality that Jesus was dead and gone. But now, early, 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 on the beginning of the day following Sabbath, which would have been early, early Sunday morning, which would be the beginning of the third day since Jesus was crucified, the exact day Jesus had been clearly prophesying to look for and to be about. He said, my whole life and mission is wrapped up in the third day after I am crucified because then I'm going to rise from the dead. But they had been hit so hard by life, they could not remember his promise. They didn't think about it. It didn't even enter into their mind. I want to take just a moment and say and talk to you. I want, all, I want your undivided attention for this moment. I'm not just giving now information, but I want to minister to your heart. Those that are watching online, those that are outside, those that are here. Because there may be some that are in this place. If you're not in this place now, you may have been in this place. And if you're not there now or in the past, you may be in this place in the future where something happens in your life and it hits you so hard. You can't think, you can't relate, you can't, 
you can't remember any good thing or any promise of God. It's like it's over. You feel like your life is over. You're breathing, but you're not living. There's nothing to look forward to. There's nothing to think about. Has that ever happened to you? Or is this happening to you now? And I wanna say this, in a fallen, sinful, broken world, it's going to happen. It will happen. And yet what happened next shocks the disciples to the core. It blows their minds because God sometimes will even use nature to shake us out of our depression and out of our darkness. Do you know what happened early while it was probably still dark? Sun's just a little bit of light creeping up. The morning is just beginning. The whole region, city of Jerusalem feels a radical tremor. There's an earthquake. There's a seismic shift that happens (laughs) because God was letting, nature was responding in that tomb. There was an explosion of life and resurrection that has just taken place. All they know is there's an earthquake. Suddenly, early Sunday morning, a violent earthquake. And by the way, that's the second earthquake tremor in three days. You know that the Bible says that on Good Friday, there was an earthquake when Jesus died. And now, on the morning of the third day, there's another earthquake, kind of like the parenthesis, now he has risen from the dead. Can I hear a glory, hallelujah, amen. God shaking the house. So look with me in verses two through four. The earthquake and the angel who moved the stone. So after the Sabbath, the first day of the week, began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door. Okay, goodbye, Roman seal. Done, broken. And then, this is one of my favorite parts. I don't know why, but I, this is funny to me. Not only, you know, so this big angel, we're gonna talk about that in a moment, and everything else, and roll the stone away, but then it says, then he sat on it. I love that, he's sitting on it. I don't know if, I think the angel crossed his legs, his wings are kind of behind him like, Told you, what have you been waiting for? Here it is. He sits on the stone. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Wow. An angel. Angels come at the most prophetic moments. By the way, God loves the whole angelic realm. And they are ministering spirits unto the heirs of salvation. Guess who the heirs of salvation are? You and me. And there's this whole realm of another creation of God that are not human beings. They're not men and women as we are, but they're angels. There's different kinds of angels, different rankings of angels. And those angels are ministering spirits. And apparently, from what we know in scripture, they love 
to be given roles in delivering messages and the power of God and the grace of God and the love of God and the redemption of the heart of God into this fallen, broken, sinful human world. They love to take assignments and, be, and they've been in, in all of the major assignments going all the way back to the, you know, uh, Mount Sinai and the giving of the law and all the way through the uh, 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, and then of course, obviously when Jesus came the first time, but may I say angels are extremely involved if you've ever read the book of Revelation in the second coming of Jesus Christ, which I believe we are racing toward at an accelerated rate like never before. So know this, angels are involved in what's happening right now. God's angels are on assignment. God's angels are on the move. In fact, um, if you wanna read a book about angels, that's very good. There's a book that was written by Billy Graham some years ago called Angels on Assignment. If you need to be encouraged, I, I highly recommend that you read Billy Graham's book, Angels on Assignment. And so this, this angel appears. And what I love about this is, when the angel appears, there's no believers, there's no disciples. There's Roman guards, hey, what's that? And then they get blown away by this angel whose face is like lightning. Their clothing is like snow and the Shekinah glory of God comes. <laughs> and the stone, you know, is removed and the seal is broken. And here's what's interesting. It's little wonder that the soldiers who are professional Roman soldiers are paralyzed with fear, trembling. And if you'll notice, what did they become like? Dead men. Do you know what the epitome of fear is? The epitome of fear is not when you scream or you cry or you run away. No, the ultimate fear is when you are so afraid, you're paralyzed, you cannot move. That's what happened to these two Roman soldiers and they were like dead men. I think they just kinda, they were like, they fell down and they were just like, I can't move. What in the world is this? What is going on? And by the way, Matthew makes use of a play on words because when he says that the Roman soldiers trembled, the Greek word is the root word for earthquake. In other words, they were so scared, their bodies were vibrating. They were, they were having tremors because of fear. They had, just as God sent an earthquake to the, you know, to the rock place and to the city of Jerusalem, he, they experienced an earthquake in their body. They, you, they couldn't control their bodies. They were experiencing a tremor. And it was beautiful. By the way, why did the angels remove the stone? Answer is not so Jesus could get out. Because Jesus is not in there. Jesus has already left. The tomb is already empty. So why did the soldier, or why did the angels move the stone? So the disciples could go in and see that Jesus is already gone and witness that he is alive. Can I hear an amen on that? So let's close with verses five through eight. He is risen as he said. Beginning in verse five, it says, but the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid. So now, 
the same angel that created you know, the, the Roman soldiers to be paralyzed with fear and to fall like dead men and be you know, having a tremor, so also the two Miriams were probably terrified. So the angel tells them, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. <laughs> Hallelujah. He is risen. As, and I love this part. They didn't just say he is risen. They said he is risen as he said. If God says it, it's done. If it's a promise in the word of God, you can believe in it because God's word will always come to pass. He said, I will be crucified, I will be buried, and I will be raised from the dead on the third day, as he said. Now come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. And there you will see him. I love that. Galilee is way in the north. Jerusalem is in the south. Galilee is in the north, around the Sea of Galilee and in Capernaum. And that's where Jesus did most of his ministry for three years, was up in the north in Galilee. And so the angels go, he's not here. I rolled the stone away so you could walk in and see he's not here. He's already been gone since early this morning. He's up in Galilee where this all started. Go up there. Tell his disciples that he will meet you there. Behold, I have told you. And so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And they ran to bring his disciples word. They had come that morning to bring spices and a memorial for their Lord. But they were not ready for the announcement by angels from heaven. He is not here because he has been raised just as he said. Now here's what, as this angel delivers this good news, I want you to think about this for a moment. How did Jesus rise from the dead? What exactly happened? How have you thought it happened or how have you imagined that it might have happened? When you get into the language that is inspired. Every verse, every word of the Bible is God-breathed, it's God-inspired. And the, the way the language describes what happened with Jesus here underscores a very important truth, and that is this. Jesus was raised from the dead by his Father. The same Father who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the same father who so loved the world that he sent from heaven his only begotten son, the same father who gave his son to be crucified in our place, the same father who allowed his son to be buried in a tomb, is the same father who early on the third day of the week was there personally as a father to take his son and to raise him from the dead. I wanna say this, the resurrection is God the Father's confirmation that Jesus Christ is his eternal son. And there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus. God the Father Almighty is saying, 
you will never know me or see me unless you come through my son. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and I will bring you to my Father. Jesus was all about introducing us to the Father. And the Father now, the other side of the cross and the resurrection says, to every one of the seven billion people on this planet, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to know God the Father, you must come through his son, Jesus. And by the resurrection of Jesus, it proves he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. I want to leave you with this scripture. This is Galatians chapter one, verse one. And now hopefully you will see it in an entirely different light because I cannot imagine what was that like for the father to somehow be there personally with his son in the darkness of the tomb with his son's body that had been crucified and then to raise his own son that he might now be seated at the right hand of the father. But look with me, Galatians chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. I want to say what a great message to bring on the eve of Father's Day to you, our Heavenly Father. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah, Father. What an honor to our Father. It was the Father who gave his Son. It was the Father who was there the moment to raise his Son, now forevermore. And in what Jesus did for us, we now get to be the sons and daughters in the family of God. We are now the bride of Messiah, we shall be married together with him. We are joint heirs with Christ for all time and all of eternity, and we're being prepared now to rule and to reign with him, world without end. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.